I'm so thankful that God gives different people different gifts and then calls them to utilize those gifts. Well, I'm still trying to figure my gift out and make it work the best I can. This morning, we're going to open the Word of God because that's what I think God has called me to do. And if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to spend several Sunday mornings together in this chapter as we examine what the Apostle Paul wrote. A lot of folks say it's not an important chapter. I think it's one of the most important chapters in all of the Word of God. In one of the dialogues of Plato, he gives an account of the conversations that occurred on the last day of the life of Socrates between that teacher and some of his students who had come to visit him as he awaited execution for impiety and corrupting the young because he refused to recognize the gods of the state. Their main topic of discussion was immortality. Where would Socrates go after he died? What what was beyond death and the end of this life? They discussed that topic all day long, and they came to no good rational conclusion. Their best answer was, well, you learn the best things that you can from the people around you, and then you just try to get through life the best you can and hope for something good at the end. That's kind of sad. I read that account, and it reminded me, they had no answer. But we do. It's given to us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul begins with a simple outline of the gospel and then goes on to write perhaps the most powerful treatise about life, death, resurrection, and eternal life that is found anywhere in Scripture. And so we're going to spend several weeks looking at it, but this morning we're going to look together at the first 11 verses. So if you've got your Bible open, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 together. If you've got your Bible open there, can and will, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word this morning. Paul writes to his brothers and sisters in Corinth, and he says, Now brothers... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles." And do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preached. And this is what you believed. Now, if you would, go back up to verses 3 and 4 and look at these verses once more. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, 
That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you to bless the reading of your word. And I pray that as we spend these moments together, you would open our hearts and minds to receive your truth. That your spirit would call to us, drawing us, convicting us, ultimately, Father, changing us. That we might bring glory and honor to you as we serve in your kingdom as your children. Father, if there's someone here who does not know you, I pray that today you would call them to yourself and make of them a new creation. Be glorified in this place, Father. This is our prayer, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Paul begins his presentation of the gospel, stating that Christ died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, all according to what Scripture had foretold. I've had someone ask me, was Paul's reasoning sound? <laughs> I think so without question. But, but let me just invite you, if you would, to examine this with me and think about this with me this morning for a few moments. Jesus lived. Historically documented fact. We have the proof of that in numerous resources outside of Scripture. I haven't found anyone who wants to deny that there was a historical man named Jesus who came from Galilee. He died a horrible death on the cross. This was witnessed and testified to by a number of different sources and witnesses. After six hours of incredible agony on the cross, he perished. Just to be certain, a Roman soldier thrust a spear into his side, draining the last remaining drops of his blood out in confirmation of his death. These masters of torture and suffering and death were so sure that he had perished on that cross, they didn't even bother to break his legs, as was their practiced habit. That's all good and well, preacher. What about this resurrection thing? I mean, you Christians make a big thing about Easter. You get together, you celebrate, you have lunches, you have breakfast, you do all manner of things, you sing all kinds of of cool songs that sound powerful and, and majestic. But what about this resurrection thing? Do you really believe that that happened? Maybe some of us came in this morning thinking, you know, maybe, maybe it's a hoax. Maybe it was a fraud that was perpetrated. Maybe someone stole his body. What proof is there actually that it happened? Listen, I can offer you nothing but the Word of God, but what better thing could I possibly offer you than the Word of God? I want us to look into our text this morning. I want you to see three solid proofs of the resurrection that the Apostle Paul lays out before us. Got your Bible open? Keep it open. Don't close it. Because I'm going to keep taking you back to it. And if you've closed it, you're going to say, what what did he say? What did he say? Keep it open. Stay with me, all right? Three proofs. Let's walk through this very quickly together. The proof offered by Scripture. Let's just begin right there. We looked at verses 3 and 4 a second time. Paul said twice in those verses, according to the Scriptures. What on earth are he talking about? The gospel accounts? No, not at all. You see, what he was pointing out was, folks, the resurrection of Jesus Christ should not have been a surprise to anyone. The death of Messiah had been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. And whenever Jesus had met those two men on the road back to Emmaus, Cleopas and his friend, as he visited with them, he began to explain who Messiah was and teach that everything that had happened had been foretold in the Old Testament. 
I don't know exactly what passages he used, but I, I, I can imagine that he might have used something like Psalm 1610 where it says, Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. What a marvelous psalm. And it tells us God was not going to allow Messiah to stay in the grave. He was not going to allow his body to decay. He was going to raise him back up from the dead in glory. And he did. Maybe he used something like Psalm 68, 18. Where the psalmist wrote, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. What in the world does that mean? You led captives in your train. He took people with him. Y'all remember those thieves that hung on either side of him at Calvary? The one who rejected him, the one who mocked him, the one who cast his lot with evil. But then you remember that other fellow. The one who looked and said, this man's done nothing wrong. We deserve what we're getting, but he hasn't done anything. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember what Jesus told him? Today, you will be with me in paradise. He brought him in on his train. Jesus brought him along. But it's not just the Old Testament. Jesus had talked about these events that were coming all throughout the course of his ministry. And I can spend a lot of time outlining that for you. Listen, Mark chapter 9. At the Mount of Transfiguration, I, I hope you're familiar with that passage. If you're not, go home and read Mark chapter 9 this afternoon. I'll give you something to do uh, since, you know, there's no more basketball games on. When Jesus came down off the mountain, he spoke to his disciples who were there, and it says that Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. He was already telling them. I love what it says after that. They kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. Sounds pretty cut and dried to me, don't you think? But they didn't get it. How could he possibly die? Or again, in in Mark chapter 9, you read that he was teaching his disciples and he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. I love this. But they did not understand what he meant. And they were afraid to ask him. How do you not understand what he's saying? It was all according to Scripture, my friends. It was all according to Scripture. What do you do? What do you say when you're confronted with this kind of evidence, whether it's from the Old Testament or the New Testament? Fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest proofs of the identity, the deity, and the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. It speaks to the the facts that in no uncertain terms, he is who he says he is. And that he was indeed raised from the dead. I find it interesting that so many people want to argue about the resurrection, whether it actually happened or didn't happen. Because you see, prophetic fulfillment has always been adequate throughout history. The resurrection is the one indisputable fact that was foundational to each one of the early sermons that we find recorded in the book of Acts. When the early church began to preach, when they were confronted with the religious leaders, when they were confronted with the masses of crowds that were gathered in Jerusalem, every time they proclaimed the truth of God, they took it to the point of the resurrection and talked about the risen Jesus, that God had raised him up in power and glory from the grave. 
I read some of those sermons this past week preparing for this morning, and I was looking for something. And I want to ask you, do you know what's missing in the book of Acts? The sound of silence, that means that I outstudied you. And let me tell you what is missing in the book of Acts. Nowhere at any point when any of those messages were preached, when the message of the resurrection was proclaimed, nowhere will you find that the religious leaders or anyone else in charge challenged the fact of the resurrection. Nobody. Do you know why? Because even those who did not believe in Jesus, even those who were not followers of the way, knew that it was the truth. The fulfillment of prophecy. It's always been enough. There was a learned Greek by the name of Justin. He wrote this. He said, to declare that a thing shall come to pass long before it is in being and then bring it to pass, this is nothing short of the work of God. Today we know him as Justin Martyr. His heart and life was changed by the proof he found in Scripture of the resurrected Lord. It turned him in a completely different direction. Fulfillment of prophecy was enough to satisfy a man by the name of Pascal, who's considered to be one of the greatest scientific minds that has ever been. And he wrote, the greatest of the proofs of Jesus Christ are the prophecies. Listen. The proof offered by Scripture is a marvelous proof of the truth of the resurrection. That's where Paul starts. After he outlines what the gospel message is, he starts telling us it's about the Scriptures. It's according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are our greatest proof. But listen, you never satisfy yourself with one argument. Not if you're a good debater, you don't. And so Paul says, let's talk about the proof of eyewitness accounts. Got your Bible open? Verses 5 through 8, here it is. He outlines it for us. Because, see, skeptics have always wanted to attack the reality and the truth of the resurrection. They've offered a long, extensive list of theories trying to undermine the historicity of this event. But they've never offered any proof. They've claimed it to be a lie. Fabricated. Made up by the apostles. But I question, how do so many people keep all the facts straight if, in fact, it's not the truth? I read one writer who said that the resurrection nothing, was nothing more than a group hallucination. Birthed by common desire during a period of group fatigue, fear, and stress. How do you prove anything? With witnesses. Isn't that right? I, I, go to court. What do they do? They call Witnesses. You prove a matter with witnesses. And so here is Paul's legal argument. Ready? Here we go. Verse 5. What does he say? You got your Bible open there. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Who were Peter and the twelve? These are the leaders. These are the pastors. These are the missionaries of the first church. They are, in fact, credible witnesses, wouldn't you say? Sure. Uh, Verse 6, 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, before anybody gets excited and said they fell asleep in church, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about most of them are living. Some of them have died. Listen, this was written about 20 years after the ascension of our Lord into heaven. Certainly in the course of 20 years, some folks had died. But he said most of them are still alive. What's he saying? He said, you can call them. You can bring them in. You can have a conversation. You can ask them, what did you really see? Where did you see it? How did it happen? What did he say? What did he do? What he's saying is, they are eyewitnesses to the fact. The whole group of them, they are credible witnesses. Verse 7. He tells us here. Then he appeared to James. Who was James? The half-brother of our Lord. Listen, James and his family, they weren't believers when Jesus was engaged in his ministry. In fact, they showed up one day and tried to get Jesus out of the crowd and told the people, send him out here. Listen, the guy's lost his mind. We need to take him home and get some care for him. You know, he's off his meds. I mean, that's basically what it came down to. They were mocking him. And here's Paul saying, listen, he appeared to James. When he appeared to James, James would have been considered an opposition witness, a hostile witness to the case. That in itself, the fact that he was considered hostile in opposition, and now he's testifying to the truth of Jesus Christ, the change in his mind makes him a credible witness. And then Paul gives the coup de grace. You want to clench this thing down? Verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me. As one born abnormally, out of due season, in the wrong time. Paul, we don't know that he ever saw Jesus during the time of his ministry. He was too busy in his rabbinical training. He was too busy getting his education so that he could be a leader among the Jews. But after Jesus was crucified and after this supposed resurrection took place, whenever the church began to grow in popularity, when the followers of the way began to be a voice that was impacting Judaism and the Holy Land and and the surrounding area, we read about Saul, don't we? He was breathing out threats and murderous words. He was the one who began to persecute the church. He was the one who was going to the religious leaders of the Judaistic culture and saying, give me letters of of introduction and recommendation. Give me authority. Give me some guards so that I can go to these cities, go to these places, and I'll arrest them. I'll bring them back here. You can try them. You can do whatever you want to. I'm just going to get them here for you. And they did it. But then one time Saul asked for letters and a guard so he could go to Damascus. Something happened, folks. I mean, I don't know if you know Saul or not. I don't know if you've read about Saul or paid attention to who he is or not. But if you haven't, I invite you, I challenge you to read about Saul who became Paul. Something happened to him on the road to Damascus. Now, there's been a lot of argument and discussion about what it might have been, but I think you kind of have to take the word of the guy who lived it, right? 
And what he says happened was that he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He was struck blind. He was told that he was going the wrong direction, that he was persecuting the one that he should be serving. It changed his heart. It changed his name. Oh, but most importantly, it changed his life. Saul was a hostile witness. He was an opposition witness who became a new man, a new creation. Credible witness? Most of the world would say so. So now, Paul has given to us scriptural evidence, eyewitness account. But I want us to focus on what we just finished. Because I think this is the one irrefutable point. Certainly it is for me. And that is the proof of a changed life. If you're in this room with me and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm confident that you could give testimony of changed life. That God has changed you from the inside out. Listen, the Jews and the Christians, they knew Saul. They knew who he was. They knew what he was about. They knew his purpose, but they could not deny, I don't care who you were, they could not deny that something had happened in the life of this man. No one had been more zealous against the Christians than Saul. They'd heard the stories. They'd seen the outcomes. But something dramatic, something drastic happened on the road to Damascus. And even they could not explain it away. They could not make sense of it. But they obviously could not deny it. Saul became Paul. His mission changed. The best way to say it is like this. He switched teams in the middle of the game. And Paul explains it to them with his personal testimony. Through the years, I've challenged a lot of believers to share their faith. And I've had so many tell me, well, I, I, I don't have the answers to the questions. I didn't even know you had to have answers to the questions. Well, I don't have enough Scripture memorized. I didn't know you had to have enough Scripture memorized. I've told multitudes of people, what has God done in your life? There is nothing more powerful than your personal testimony of how Jesus changed you. And my friends, that's what Paul gives us here. You ready to finish? You better say amen. I got a pocket full of M&Ms. I can go all day, folks. I brought lunch with me right here. I have to get somebody to get me a drink, but I'm sure I can find a volunteer. Paul gives his personal testimony. You've got your Bible open. I want you to look with me at the end of this. You want to know what a personal testimony includes? Here it is. You ready? Verses 9 and 10. Get there. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He tells about what he was in the past. I was the persecutor. 
I was the one who was going to hunt them down and make sure that they paid for their crime of turning on the God of my faith. I'm the one who was going to search them out, drag them back in chains, make sure that they faced trial and that they were punished for what they had done. I persecuted the church of God. What was he saying? I'm a sinner. Can I get a witness? I was a sinner. I am a sinner. God saved me. You see, what we are in the past, no matter what our action or our activity is, is the same. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're sinners. It's that simple. Paul says, I was a sinner. I persecuted the church of God. And then he says, but something happened. Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Paul revealed the one thing that changed everything for him. The one thing that made a difference in his life. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not without effect. Listen, I can't earn my salvation. I can't buy my salvation. I can't be good enough for my salvation. But by His grace, I am what I am. I stand redeemed before the Father, not because of who I am, not because of what I have done, not because of anything I can offer, but because of His amazing grace. Paul says it changed me. Here's who I was. Here's what God brought. In verse 10, he says, I worked harder than all of them. He said, wait a minute. You just said I can't earn it. I can't be good enough. No. But my friends, I want you to understand something. He saves us to good works. Not because of good works, but to good works that he has before ordained for us. Paul was telling his readers, you know what I was. You know what I am today. And the one thing that changed it all for me was I met the resurrected Lord and his grace is sufficient. This morning, I offer to you these simple evidences of the resurrection from the pen and the hand of Paul. Proof offered by Scripture. Proof offered by eyewitnesses. Proof offered by a changed life. And every one of us has to make a choice of what we will believe. Is it real? Did the resurrection occur? Is Jesus alive? If so, if you're convinced, if you believe that and you've never done so, I invite you this morning, surrender to him, follow him, serve him. If you believe that and you've already done that, you've already said, I surrender. Your Lord, I quit. You take control. Do with me what you will. You need to be serving him, friend. Have you found that place of service? Will you follow him today?
I've often said that what God did in my life may not sound like anybody else. See, that's the marvelous thing about a personal testimony. It's unique. I was saved as a child. I wasn't a dope dealer. Hadn't murdered anybody. I just terrorized my Sunday school classes. But I'll tell you this, I lived on the wrong side of the tracks. And I hung with a bad bunch of people. Some of them are still trying to find their way. Some of them are locked away behind bars. And I know this, Jesus saved me from my sins and Jesus saved me from what I would have become if I had followed my own devices. He called me into his kingdom. He called me his child. He called me into his service. And I have experienced his blessings over and over and over again. And I just want to invite you this morning. If you've not surrendered to him, do not delay. You're missing out on the best thing. That will ever happen in your life. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a a song of commitment, of surrender. The only reason is because I, I just don't think it's right to share the truth with people and not give them an opportunity to respond. It may be that the Spirit of God is speaking to you. It may be that today He's calling you and you know that. You need to surrender. You want to surrender. Maybe you're not sure what happens or how that happens or what comes after that. That's okay. We want to help you with that process. We'll never embarrass you or put you on the spot, but I'd love to invite you. Come, take me by the hand say, Pastor, I need that relationship. We'd just love to visit with you and share with you and pray with you. It might be that you're sitting here and you're saying, I did that. I did that years ago. He changed my life. Okay. Who have you told lately? Who have you shared that with? People are dying by the thousands every day. They're entering into eternity. And many of them entering without Christ. Most of them. Have you told anybody lately what Jesus did in your life? Would you commit yourself today? Say, Father, if you'll just give me the courage. And he'll do it, by the way. If you'll just give me the courage, show me the opportunity. I'll tell someone what you did in my life. Don't tell him that unless you mean it. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. He's gone to glory, but my friends, he's coming again. The question is, will we be ready? Who will we take with us? Who will we left behind? What's God calling you to today? Father, I thank you this morning for your word. How challenging. (laughs) Lord, I pray that we would not be satisfied to hear your word, to understand its truth, and to walk out of here as if nothing ever happened. Change our hearts. 
break our hearts for the things that break your heart. Help us to see people not by the color of their skin, not by the style of their clothing or the model of the car or the kind of house they drive in or what part of town they live in. Help us to see people the way you do as those who are your children and those you're trying to reach. And Father, if there's one here you're trying to reach, call them this morning. Call them to yourself. And for your children today, Father, in this place, I pray. Give us a burden to share the truth of the gospel. That Jesus died and was buried according to the scriptures and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And may that truth go and pierce the hearts of those who hear. Father, you've spoken to us through worship. You've spoken to us through this time in your presence. You've spoken to us through your word. Now I pray that your spirit would draw us to acts of obedience as we surrender to you. Father, have your way in our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.